History Lecture 129, Rabbi Uh We are moving from the present to the future uh, in history. I don't think most history classes do that. We're ambitious here, uh, trying to try to get catch of the whole sweep of whatever we can based on our knowledge, based on Chazal. Right? Um, to, to, uh, to tie up our major topic yesterday of the Torah world as, it, as we find it today with definitely uh, self-conscious bias towards what's going on in, in Eretz Yisrael, uh, I mean no disrespect to the great yeshivas abroad, I didn't go into great um, detail about what's going on there, but there is much like there's a gravitational pull towards the prestigious Litfish yeshivas in Eretz Yisrael, so too is there a similar gravitational pull to Eretz Yisrael in the diaspora. And that's why for so many people, for example, in this neighborhood, you notice you hear a lot of English and because it's placed that serious young Torah um, um, uh, people, and let's say people starting their new life as a married couple, will come and live in Eretz Israel, some of whom have an eye on staying here. Most don't wind up staying here because it's hard. And with all their idealism and, and uh, ambition to be here, it often doesn't work out. Um, but they come for, for, for a period with the understanding that this is really the foundation. And so since, like the same dynamic we described yesterday, since, Eric, since the prestigious yeshivas attract the best and it becomes its own cycle of the best breeds the best, so too Eretz Israel has that increasing pull and dynamic as well. Um, so that thrillingly, really just uh, you know within the radius of just a few miles in this area you have some of the deepest richest torah being learned in the world which may be not the same as as we started yesterday not the same as what it was and not even that many generations ago but okay we do what we can in our generation given our limitations um i left off yesterday describing uh, getting very political and getting very much in the here and now uh and very very update updated about the current government don't put too much emphasis on this. As we see, governments come, governments go. The status quo comes, the status quo goes. And chas v'shalom, but it, you know, there's such a seething, strong um, uh, constituency that resents the Torah world and seeks to overturn it. Who's to say what's coming around the bend? Uh, we can only daven and hope, but um, I, I wanted to talk about that for a moment, about the challenges um, and, and what they represent, if indeed they represent such a great challenge. Go ahead. On uh, this government? Yeah. What is the opposite? Uh, the opposition? They don't have any power? Or like I'll describe to you. Oh, how does you're saying the, the general social? This was a social parliamentary democracy. How how does it work? It's so, it's so complicated that most people don't really even insiders don't always get it because there's so many forces and contra contradictory forces at work. Um, that often the government takes two steps in one direction and then two steps in the other direction and often is, it, it's in a state of ongoing paralysis. That's, it's, it's, it's a terribly inefficient, ineffective government and many of the other issues get pushed to the, to the side. There are ecological problems in Israel, there are social, economic problems that rarely get full attention because the government is constantly, that whatever parties are in power are usually struggling for their own survival and they worry about the political shenanigans and because the, the coalition government itself is so fragile, they spend more time and energy and money worrying about the coalition than they do about the actual job of governing. Uh, it's uh, one, of the, one, of, one of the terrible uh, realities of the state as, as it is today. Um, and, uh, and as we've said many times, there's rarely a government that lasts out its term. Usually what happens, so the way the build of it is, the largest party in the government is invited by the president, who has no, has no real power, but he's a figurehead, Queen of England, President Ruby Rivlin right now, um, who's, who then deems the guy who's got the most votes, in this case it was Bibi Netanyahu, um, to try to put patch together a coalition government. How do you do that? You make deals. Um, Israelis are tough negotiators. Um, they squeeze as much as they can out of each out of out of one another. Um, he had a really hard round. Um, in theory, what was predictable and logical in everybody's best interest in the government was that he would have gotten um, six parties together, making a majority of 67 seats out of 120, which, based on Israel's records, would have been a, a relatively stable government. Right now, they didn't get one of those parties, so they're just at oh, it was a, it would have been a 66. 
majority because they just got 61, which is the bare minimum if one person in that coalition decides to bolt, decides to leave for whatever reason, whatever issue they may have. And you can imagine there are myriad issues that come up in the course of governing uh, a cantankerous people like Am Yisrael, Am Kishay Oref, uh, and in this difficult part of the world. All he has to do is leave the government or threaten to leave and the whole government collapses and they have to go to new collapses and they have to go to new elections. So I'll describe that, but I'm just giving you asked the question about the dynamics, the, the fragile, delicate dynamic in the government as is. That's the reason. That's why if you have, you have a larger government, you have a little more of a buffer zone. The individual rogues can't threaten as easily because, okay, so leave. You know, so you can call them on the bluff, they can leave, and you still have government intact. But now with 61, any one of those people can bolt, and, 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 and that's, that's it. And often there are conflicts. They don't see eye to eye. Um, the... Um, the, the, um, the, the party that should have joined ideologically is aligned with most of the other factors is a Victor Lieberman's party that used to be the Russian party. Now it's called the immigrants party. It's, uh, the, the technical term for it is Israel Beitain, which means nothing, but uh, Israel's our home. But it, it's known as the, the, mostly the Russian immigrant party. Um, they're, the, they're right wing. The Russians generally, stereotypically, are very right wing. Um, and he probably, because of personal pride, he was. He had a much larger party. He was foreign minister, which is a high-level job, high prestige, highly prestigious job in the previous government. He lost it, uh, probably because the, the party was, accused, was, was convicted of, uh, of corruption. Um, there's, I think, I don't know if she's going to be thrown in jail. I don't know where it is. I don't follow these things closely. But one of the women you know, was in power and used her power to give friends jobs and, and do other kinds of favors, things you're not supposed to do. And, and they, they increasingly try to crack down and catch these uh, the, the, the white collar criminals. And um, if they are, I don't know. I mean, the justice system is not much of a justice system, so I don't know if they're really guilty. But that's what that's what it's alleged that she was corrupt. Um, in any case, he went down, and probably because he doesn't like Netanyahu and because he was myth, he didn't join the coalition. That's bad for him, and it's bad for everybody. He's sitting in the opposition, even though they say, because the politicians all, every, like to spin everything, is always in their favor, oh, I'll be more effective fighting being a critic in the opposition. Being in the opposition means you're, you're ineffective. You're neutered. You, you can't really do much of anything. Uh, practically, that's where the religious, that's where the uh, Torah parties were in the last round, and they scream and criticize, but they couldn't legislate so, so effectively. Um, when you're sitting in power, one of the things they, they make a deal with is that um, they have all kinds of policies, including what I cited yesterday is a good example of this, where <laughs> there's now an official agreement within this government that there can't be a change to the status quo. That makes it impossible for other people in the opposition to legislate as they like to. That's very powerful. Um, they, you know, the, the, the cabinet has sub-cabinets. They have the military. Uh, at the top military group who decides what goes on in war. That could be pretty impactful, uh, what, what, what they determine. Um, the, the parties, you ask who's in power. So the party, the largest party is the Likud, which is an ideological descendant of Vladimir Jabotinsky and Menachem Begin and the revolution 1977, and they make the Camp David Accords, and it's been the ruling power for the majority of the last, of, 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 of Israel's history since 1977 with a couple of breaks. A couple times that the labor was in, was was in power, but not not recently. Uh, the, the the other parties have had uh, the Likud, Likud is well. Kadima was in power for for for, for uh, a period there. That was like a, a temporary phenomenon. I, I really didn't mean to slide into a whole discussion on Israeli politics. You realize it is interesting. There are a lot of players. The cast of characters like a soap opera, and Israelis are obsessed with this stuff. It's a kind of it's their form of the Super Bowl, the elections. It's it's they follow it wrapped. You can ask a six-year-old on the street. Often, they can tell you everybody in the Knesset and all of their peccadillos and all the various, uh, you know, all the various uh, behind-the-scenes deals that went on and all the, the various accusations and uh, corruption and sometimes the real corruption. And how does the opposition pass legislation? They have to get everybody in the opposition. Right, they have to get votes, and they're just they're simply they they often have their hands tied behind their back. So um, presently, the Likud is is, is uh, has a. I mean, it used to be much more, the big parties were much larger. Today, the, the, um, uh, it's more dis distributed across many parties, which makes for a generally weaker coalition. Because you have a bunch of people, but nobody in particular. So the largest Likud at 30. Um, the second in the ruling, in the, in the ruling um, group is at 10. It's a brand new party. They're constantly brand new parties who promise revolution and usually uh, wind up offering much less in the end. Uh, dynamic, charismatic fellow by the name of Moshe Kachalom put together. His platform is 
um, is the deplorable economic state of Israel, the social injustice, and to try to fix things so that people could afford apartments and food. We've gone shopping in this country recently, you see how expensive things are. So that's what he promises. Um, I, I believe he's probably a sincere fellow and wants to try to improve things. I wish him good luck, it'll be extremely hard because we know that these forces are all up to Kaddish Baruch Hu. They're, they're subject to so many myriad other factors that uh, even when you're in the power and you can legislate, you're still, you have to dive in. You know, so for you such things to come government? true. What's that? Do you like to train for the government? Um, you can, I don't, I would never do that. I would dive in, but the Jews should be well-to-do and, you know, should have, like we do dive in, it's, it's been, it's, it's in our Shmonasre, it's in our Birkas Muslim. we do dive in for such things. I'm saying, in his position, he's hoping to really, uh, you know, make good on what he promised his uh, electorate and he, he has to dive in. I think he's a traditional guy. He's, you know, Sephardi, so many of the Sephardi have that traditional, um, Outlook and so on. He's not religious. He's not Shomer Torah mitzvahs. Uh, so he's he's in power. Um, the, the, he's at, he has ten ten people in his in his group. Habayta Yudi has eight. They just got a great deal. They got away with they blackmailed and they got rid of the uh, unreasonably uh, good takeaway from their the coalition. Um, and then Shas and Yahudut Torah, the other religious parties, the Sephardi religious and the and the, and the Ashkenazi uh, religious parties. Um, each have their um, uh, pieces. The Sfaradis Shas is, is now at, at uh, seven members, and Yadu Dador is at six, and they make up that makes up a total of 61. Um, they vie for um, what's called um, cabinet posts. Who's the minister of this? Uh, that's that they vie for policy decisions. They vie for assistant kinds of uh, positions where they can rule certain money kitties. You give out money to different, uh, you know, for housing it's this, for medical things it's another thing. Um, in the, op the leader of the opposition is the, this version of the old age old Labor Party which mer merged with a, uh, a woman by the name of Tippi Livni who's uh, a political player, wrangler, cynical person. Um, and um, they're the next most powerful at 24 seats, and they're going to lead from the opposition. Lapid shrunk. He had 90. He was a he was last election's revolution. He was the new kid on the block that got 19 votes, which was extraordinary. Uh, and he's gotten down to 11, or uh, maybe he's at 12, uh, which is typical. And often these new parties make a big sound and then disappear. Ariel Sharon had a revolution in was it 2001 with a, part, a party called Kadima. Uh, he actually won. I came out of nowhere to lead the government, which was unheard of, it was unprecedented in Israel, uh, and he led, um, and Kadima has shrunk progressively since then. Uh, it was absolutely destroyed a few years ago in, in the election, and la the last election, 2012, this is really boring for you, I'm sorry. He asked the question. I realize a lot to say. I'll, I'll move on from it. This is not. I, I wanted to go to Olam Haba. You, you got me into Israeli politics, um, but you can hear it's like very engrossing. There's all kinds of stuff. Anyway, I'll finish. I'll finish with this. Um, in 2012, they got two votes. They got uh, two seats, which now they wouldn't even pass the threshold. Yeah. And um, this year, they didn't even bother. There's no. They, it disappeared. There was a Kadima, and it's gone. That's happened many, many times. Usually a charismatic figure comes, makes a big sound, has an issue, has a platform, puts it over. Everybody thinks, no, Israel's going to be revolutionized, and it never happens because you can't place your faith in pop faith in politics, even though Israelis usually do. You have to place your faith in a Kaddish Baruch Hu and Lenin And that's my segue back to our real topic at hand. Um, what I do want to say is, in 2012, when the new kid on the block, Yer Lapid, uh, whose father was the new kid on the block several generations, several elections earlier, uh, his father was much more brazenly anti-Torah. Um, he Wait, uh, cynical. This Yair Lapid, his father Tommy Lapid, was even more outspoken, more obnoxious in his in his um, venomous hatred of everything Torah. I think in his advertisements he had he mocked uh, whatever he could find the hypocrisies of the Torah world. Like you know, like one he he like has a bottle of water with a hasher on it. He says, kosher water? I need kosher water? You know, as a way of like lambasting the whole kashrus industry and everything like that. Uh, I, uh, that was years ago. His son is an is like, is, is, is entertainment figure. He's a little smoother of an operator and he tries to claim, he brought in, one of the people on his, on his list was somebody who went to, he was in yeshiva with Rabbi Lieber, um, was the guy with the black, that looks like a black hat. Black hat. 
has a black keep on his head, American guy, the only American on, uh, in, in the Knesset in the last election, uh, who's in, I don't know, because Barfo you know, runs the world, one imagines he's in trouble in Olam Haba, because he was their court Jew. He was basically the fig leaf. <coughs> you know, look, they have, a, they have a Haredi one too, even though he didn't follow Dastur, he went against all the rabbis and doing what he did to get his power. Anyways, now, his name is Dovlip, and if he can get to the Knesset this time around, Baruch Hashem. Uh, anyway, opportunist. The, um, <coughs> the, uh, that government under Lapid promised to, and put it in such cynical terms, but effectively deconstruct the fragile elements of the Torah world that we've just been describing that took the Panovich Rab and the Chazonish and the others and Rosh all those years to try to put together, try to create a dynamic system, try to get an economic uh, basis for which people could live Torah lives and restore Torah to its, to its former greatness, something that we're still working for. And um, they took away um, the family allowances, and they took away, and they, they, they cut kolil budgets, and they tried to draft people, and all the rest of that. And there was understandable gloom and doom in the Torah world. Um, people understood it possibly as an existential threat. And, I, and, and the reason I'm addressing it now is that such a thing could come around again. There's absolutely a sentiment for that. Um, I mean, Israeli public tends to be so anti-Tayra, so anti-Haredi, that um, they would sooner vote for that than for somebody, let's say, who represents their military interests. You know, if there's like a left-wing, right-wing, and it's about the war, if that's the real, you know, people vote around issues. So if that was the issue, they'd often vote against Tyra more than they would vote to put whatever, you know, right-wing or left-wing government in power. So it could come around again, and I, 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 therefore, it's, I think it's, I just want to make the observation on that, that where some in the Torah world, not, none of the Gadolians said this, but you hear people, a lot, of, a lot of common people, feel that the Torah world was a threat. I don't think that's accurate. Um, there are serious students in virtually, and we've had in history, we've seen this, under almost any circumstances. Baruch Hashem. In fact, sometimes adversity brings out the best in people. And I think in this last round too, we have to we have to take everything that happens anyway as exera minishamayim. Everything's a, a decree from it. So if Lapid got in power and all these decrees were set in motion, there was some damage done. Whatever the current government is trying to do to reverse it, they're gonna they're gonna be challenged. Uh, the army is increasingly a reality for a lot of Haredi people, um, young men, even some established Balabatim are going to the army, and that's for better or for worse. That's that's what's going to be happening. Um, some wanted to say that maybe these decrees were happening from Hashem as a way of saying that we've gotten a little too complacent. Our mysterious nefesh for learning Torah because now it was handed to you. It's part of the system. You go to the Yeshiva Kitana, Yeshiva Gedola, Kolel. You, get, you have your, your wife goes to work and so on. It became a little bit, not easy, it was never easy, but a little too smooth. And maybe you got to sweat if you're trying to do something important. That, that was, I think, a, a good a good comment, and, and, and the thing I'm criticizing here is this feeling that people were talking about, and I heard this even Chashu people saying this, that we're victims, it's not fair, they're, they're persecuting, they're discriminating against the Torah world. Uh, maybe, I mean, that's true, but I, it seems to me that's not a, an attitude of somebody with bitachon. Because you have to see that all these things come, come from a Kaddish Baruch uh, You know, if we had money from the government, for the children, Anyway, the whole attitude, the pragmatic, real politic attitude of the Torah parties in the government is, well, they're giving out this money anyway, let's direct it towards to our world. Okay, and if at one point we can't get that money, it all comes from Hashem anyway, so it shouldn't be a problem. I know there was a story of Rav Shach, actually in a meeting in Telstone, uh, in 1979, soon after Telstone uh, became a place, uh, 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 and he met with the Moetzis and there was a movement that they were going to because Begin was now in power and there was more sympathy towards the Torah world and so they, they, there was a windfall they were going to get all this money for Torah institutions and Rav Shach voiced and he was a lone voice he said you cannot take this money he said only half of it and they were shocked and they opposed Rav Shach they said this is do you realize what we'll be able to do? How many payrolls we'll be able to pay? The ready salaries finally? We'll be able to really support a Torah institution if we take the money from the government? And Roshach said, if you take money from the government, it's, it's, you're going to become dependent on the government. It's not going to go well for you. 
And a gadol has the vision, and it seems to me we should take a cue from these kinds of things. When Roshach, what Roshach was saying is, it's a mixed blessing, all this government money. It's, on some level, dirty money. And um, not, always, not always so clear. It's good for the Jews. People take a very simplistic view. Oh, good, the Haredi parties are now in the coalition. That's good for the Jews. I would say, like everything else we've been talking about, mixed and I don't place my faith in politics. Uh, that's not how Mashiach is going to come. Politics is just what we do now as much as we can to try to get a better deal for the, um, for the religious, for the religious uh, people. Um, you, you remember that the Satmar, and not just the Satmar, many of the anti-Zionists, mostly Hasidim, and the Karta certainly, but larger groups of Hasidim, um, the Satmar felt that we should never take money. It's tainted money to take money from the state. It's poison money. Um, and that's their attitude. Listen, in America, I know Rav Gifter, the great Rosh Hashiv of Tells, who was in Telstone for a short period before he was called back. Rav Gifter criticized YU for taking government monies. He said he saw, YU, when they, when they decided to take government funds, sold its soul. Because by taking the government funds, it meant that they legally had to have a gay club. And they had to, I don't know, you know, basically compromise on Torah left and right. Uh, they, had to, they had to employ non-Jewish employees and teach secular subjects in a secular way. And uh, many of the problems that exist at YU have to do, directly or indirectly, because of the, the money that they get. It's true that money helps and you have a real viable institution that way. Um, but that's, that's, so that's Satmar's view too. You should be purist. Um, on a certain level, even though Satmar, I think, is, this view is not what most Dolim endorse, but I can admire if they believe, you know, that they're anti-state and they don't accept the money as well, kola kavod, I mean, if they're really purist, I guess they also shouldn't be using the garbage cans. No, they shouldn't be, can't be driving on the roads if you're using the services of the secular state. Electricity and water, for sure not. If you're really a purist about this, which I guess nobody is, but... Um, the other side of it, the Karliner Stoliner Rebbe, another totally different Hasidic perspective, he, he defended the pragmatic approach. He said, um, you know what, at the end of the day, it's actually better to take government money than it is to steal. I don't know if he gets that. Meaning, in other words, he felt that if you're not going to take that money, and you don't really have many means of parnasa yourself, what it does to a lot of the common people is it makes them have to steal. It makes them get involved with corrupt dealings. He said, in the end, we're living in the real world. Maybe, in a sense, it's better to, to, to compromise if you have to compromise and take the money. Um, yeah. Um, today, we're living in times, again, the Chavetz Chaim understood this is maybe the ikvus of the Mashiach, the footsteps, the early stages of the Messianic process. Heavenly Mashiach are prevalent around the toils before the Mashiach comes. Um, we see increasing modes of learning that are prevalent throughout the world. Um, we've mentioned Dafyomi. I, I mentioned it critically, but we should certainly see it as, a, as mainly a positive uh, phenomenon to celebrate. That It's a motivator. People get, not only do they start learning and getting through Shas, whatever, whatever superficial level they're getting through, they're at least seeing pages, getting information. Um, but also, and no less significant, they're part of something. When they make, have you been at the Siyama Shas? Were you there last time? Okay. Um, you make it a priority to participate, go wherever you are in the world. There are, depending on where you're standing, there are video teleconferences where you can see, that's inspiring to feel that kind of interconnected. You know, you see London and Manchester and you see Los Angeles and, and, and Sydney and Melbourne and Johannesburg and of course Yerushalayim, Yerukodesh and New York, of course, Madison Square Garden. and. I'm Israel, Amcha, that's thrilling, and we're all celebrating the Torah, and many people indeed are increasing numbers, make a siyum, a shas, again, whatever siyum is, you know, maybe a guy was like half spaced out while the Rebbe was saying it over, but okay, let's not discredit whatever they could get, we know the, the Kiruv movement, the yeshivas, the literature, the internet, uh, not every time the Torah is equal, but all Torah is good, um, we know that Anybody learning is a soldier in the battlefield. Um, we don't appreciate our learning enough. We've talked about this a lot in our Gemara here in the morning. You have to realize what you're doing is saving the world, even if it doesn't feel so consequential. Daniel, this is very apropos our discussion. You have to strengthen yourself. You have to realize when you're learning Torah, it's not just because you're getting to be a better person and you're improving your skills. You're sitting, your ability to sit in Torah for five minutes is gold. 
10 minutes, an hour, it's amazing. It's fantastic, it's saving the world. Do not minimize the importance of that. In Olam Haba, every five-minute segment that you will have sat and learned will be held up and will be part of what, what's celebrated you know, about you. I guess, you know, like, um, you know, my little kids get like little stickers when they say a bracha or do a mitzvah, and then at home they bring the stickers home, and my wife puts them up in a collage, and then at the end of the week they get a whole collage that puts together all their great mitzvahs and brachas and all the good things they did in the week. That's a pretty decent metaphor for what's going to be Olam Haba. And you have to realize, you have to wear those stickers proudly. Um, it's what's propelling the world to the next level of redemption. Um, uh, you have to realize that when you're learning Torah in one part of the world, that's having a ripple effect in the rest of the world. You asked me earlier today about Nepal. What's the significance of Nepal? If place, I have no idea. Uh, but I do believe that if there's an earthquake in Nepal, somehow, directly, indirectly, it was because of the Lom de Taira or the lack of Lom de Taira in other parts of the world. It's like a chiropractor, right? If they massage your calf, somehow it fixes your headache. Somehow, that's the way the world is mystically put together, that everything is, everything is interrelated, and Torah learning stands at the center. A um, little bit, last comment on the world as it is today, uh, before we launch into Yomos Mashiach. The um, Chazal teach that during the days of the Messianic era, uh, that all of Klal Yisrael will keep mitzvahs in Eretz Yisrael, uh, which in a certain level is kind of hard to imagine uh, when you think of today's assimilation, the intermarriage, the general apathy, the, in Israel, the often what you find the hostility to keeping mitzvahs, but um, maybe it's going to happen, and maybe it's not so far off. Uh, there are conflicting uh, reports on these things, but I'm going to cite a, um, what's called the Goodman Center Survey. It's not, an, not a religious organization. They did a survey six years ago, 2009, uh, of Israelis across the spectrum, Jewish Israelis across the spectrum, and how they hold on any number of issues. And they assembled some pretty interesting data in terms of, um, and, and, and by the way, this is in 2009, they did, uh, they did a very similar um, study nine years earlier, 1999, and the progression in 10 years is, uh, is, is remarkable and worthy of comment. So listen to some of the results. Um, when asked, Israelis, I don't even know Israelis, like Israelis are a tough bunch, and not what you would think of prototypically religious. How many, how many of you, you know, how many, what percentage of Israelis would you guess believe that a Kaddish Baruch exists? 80%. 80 percent. You saw this. 80 percent. That's. And and you have to compare that. Um, you know. Oh, oh, I don't have this. I have other things I'm comparing, uh, but um, much less ten years earlier. Um, how many of you think you know that the nation of the Jews, are, the Jewish people, are an amtskula, are a chosen nation, a special mission in the world? Seventy percent. You have to realize that's remarkable for a country that's extremely pluralistic and democratic. That's a pretty racist idea, no? I mean, if you're really a pluralist, how could you say amtskula? So it's a very Jewish idea. But uh, were there more? It was the second Israelis are not so secular in a lot of their core values. They may be anti-Torah, anti-Haredi. But uh, a lot of their core beliefs are, are very, um, how many, uh, what percentage would you say believe that Torah and mitzvahs were given by Hashem? 65%. Um, there's life after death. It's lower, but still 56%. Over half the people believe in life after death. 55% uh, affirm the idea of Mashiach. That's stunning. If you do a similar survey in other parts of the world, you won't you won't well, get these numbers. To be honest, I don't think it's that the other percentage doesn't believe in the Mashiach. I think they just like to think that it wouldn't come to life. It's not rational. It's not progressive. It's not part of the intelligentsia, messianic belief. It's so backwards thinking. Would be you know just across the way at Hebrew University, you find many people who would who would wince at these at these statistics. But what I'm, I'm presenting them now as perhaps, you know, if we're looking at this, the, the age that we're living in is still part of Ikhus of the Mashiach, maybe we're seeing Am Yisrael going through a very gradual growth spurt, growth in spiritual terms. 
Um, in terms of how people identify personally, in 1999, 52% of Israelis identified as secular. Secular meaning no religion at all, I'm nothing. Um, in 2009, the number went down to 46%. 46% now thinks less than half thinks that they're secular. Um, how many, what percentage is identified by themselves as orthodox? And we know orthodox can mean a lot of things, but whatever orthodox is, um, 1999, there were 16% self-identified Orthodox. 2009, 22%. That, that's a leaps ahead. 32% um, describe themselves as traditional. Masorti, in 1991, 44% said that the state should, quote, ensure that public life is conducted according to Jewish religious tradition. It's only 44%. 2009, not quite 20 years later, from 44%, it leaps and bounds ahead 61%. Thinks it should be conducted according to traditional Jewish uh, standards. Um, many feel that these trends are going to continue. That it's, it's, we're seeing an upward gauge as we're moving away from the founding fathers of the secular state and into something different. Um, in terms of raw numbers, the best estimates of the demographers is as of um, as of this year there are about 13.5 million Jews in about a hundred countries throughout the world right now there are 41 um, percent in Eretz Israel 40 percent in the United States and the rest is distributed elsewhere British British uh, Great Britain France uh, and elsewhere um, former Soviet Union still has a large number, but um, Eretz Israel has already taken the number one spot in terms of numbers um, by the projections, which you know are very flawed, but to the best of their knowledge, people predict a majority of Jews, meaning over half of the Jews in the world, will be actually present on the soil of Eretz Kodesh within 20 years. There's Rosh Hashem in our lifetimes. Yimos Mashiach. Chaim has last us and start by some of his discussion. He looks at other dynamics in the modern world and wonders. We've talked about this too, if you remember the advent of modernity. He said, you consider the fact that technology, the tech industrial revolution, has sped everything up exponentially. Every few years, uh, next year's computer within a couple years becomes old refuge. Uh, you, have a, you have a 2014 model, I'm so sorry for you. Right? It's dated already, it doesn't do half the stuff that the new model does. Um, the world's knowledge in scientific terms and technological terms in every term doubles every four years. Is the best they can estimate, they can't really tell. I don't know if you realize that. You ever heard that one before? Daniel, you got that? The world's knowledge doubles every four years to the point that it's virtually impossible to keep track of progress. Listen to this idea. Some people, some used to know about 100 years ago it was conceivable that brilliant, exceptional individuals could know all of the science in the world and have a mastery of it, more or less. Today, it's virtually impossible for a specialist to keep up with their own discipline, their own field in science, the knowledge within that science is so vast. I mean, we have computers and the internet and, 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 and the information superhighway, the internet, which I guess enables us, but it also cripples us because we rely on it too much and therefore we don't have the knowledge ourselves, we just press the buttons and it comes up to us, but we don't retain it. Um, so the Chavetz Chaim looks at all of this spiritually and he makes a connection with Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, which um, I just did the Gemara in Perak which is certainly the address for this topic, um, that also compares um, the end of days with Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Um, he says, remember initially Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, the ex the, um, our, our sojourn in Egypt was supposed to be how many years? 400, actually by some accounts 430, but let's say 400 more famously. Um, so what happens? We stayed in Egypt how many years? 210 years. 210 years, fine. 210 years. So what happened to 400 years? So Rashi explains, and really we start counting from Yitzchak's uh, birth. But actually, Chavetz Chaim says, in technical terms, the 
210 was a favor from Hashem. So how do you do that? <clears throat> so the Medrash tells us that um, instead of having to do the extra 190 years, Hashem intensified, condensed the Avdus into a short period. So it was 210 years that was really worth the 400 years of, of slavery. We got it all in, kind of like somebody cramming for an exam. Again, all, you know, you should have been studying all term, but meanwhile you stayed up all night and got it all in the last minute. Um, he said that like in Egypt, they were antsy to get out, and they had to get out before it was too late, before they sunk to the 50th level of Tuma. So too, in our generation, maybe it's, we can't wait any longer for Mashiach. We're sinking so fast. And perhaps that's why we can explain all of the historical processes that are taking place all around us in the world seem to be sped up. One sees a remise to this idea in the Zohar, in the great, in the great uh, commentary on the, on the Chumash. It, the Zohar comments on the Mabul, on the flood, that Noah was 600 years old when the windows of the heavens opened and the water poured down uh, and came to the earth. Water, we know, is Tyra, is knowledge. The waters, the floodgates have opened. And indeed, like Noah was 600 years, the Zohar connects and says, the Zohar writes this, in the sixth century of the sixth millennium, um, which would, according to this, that's the Zohar saying the sixth century of the sixth millennium, that lines up approximately with the year 5000. Year 5000 in secular terms, 1940, 40, 1940 it was the year 5000, whatever 1940 was, we're in the heart of the uh, final solution at that point, but um, sometime around that period, the Zohar says, um, around the time of the, the outbreak of the Industrial Revolution, the world indeed will become flooded with water, with great knowledge. We won't even know what to do, how to harness that knowledge. It'll be so vast. Uh, but eventually, we, it'll all come together. Um, we have many predictions about how the end of days will unfold. Uh, I'm going to cite some of them. They're confusing, deliberately. There's a lot of mystery, probably well, you know, necessary mystery around this. Um, some of the predictions you might have heard, others I'm going to share with you. I've been promising some of these to you all year, uh, and um, it's extraordinary. I refer you to the Mishnah at the end of Maseches Sota. You should look it up. It's Memkes Amu Beis. That cites a number of developments that are very deservedly famous. In the footsteps of the Messianic period, Chutzpah Yazgei. Chutzpah will be elevated. Uh, people will be more brazen. Uh, the Chavetz Chaim says that's like a, a flame flickers before going out. So too the Eight Sahara in the times in these times, even in a tzaddik will have will be given a final burst of power before it's defeated. So if you wonder, you look around, you hear I don't know. I think about sometimes you hear about a Rosh Hashiva gets in trouble, Hasrashalom, but it happens, and you see wow, there's something going on today. What's with the Eight Sahara? How come people are falling? Um, there's the rabbi who got caught uh, with it, looking at it and taking pictures in a woman's mikvah. He just died. No, don't tell, don't tell us. You know, the concept is clear and he's not the only example. Um, the Yitzhahar is pronounced today in a way that it was not even a hundred years ago. It's out there, it's inside, it's contagious. Chutzpah uh, The Yitzhahar is having a final burst of power before its defeat. I think somebody else, a, greater, a, great, a great mind in Torah, said that's probably what one sees on the, in, the, in the tragic conflict in the Panovich Shiva when they argue over who should be able to dab in Mayriv. This took place a couple months ago. Uh, it's the Sahara, and the Sahara burns in the hearts of great Torah scholars and who, who've lost it, who've lost their abilities. And it's not just there, it's in lots of places. The, the Mishnah continues... In the, the ikvos to Mashiach and the, the footsteps of the Messianic era, costs will soar. Did we go shopping recently? Kamarantaini says that it connects inflation. Inflation correlates, corresponds to the t- deterioration of learning and the rise of chutzpah. It's the less learning, the more chutzpah, and the greater the prices are. It's all it's all interconnected in ways we don't perceive. Um, in the days of Mashiach, 
the government will be heretical? Check. Uh, there will be no tochacha. People will not be able to criticize nor take criticism. Well, one is because of the other. Uh, Rashi explains there, when hearing rebuke, each will respond, well, you're no better than me, and they'll be right. That not that just so typical of us today? You can't tell me what you, Rebbe, you can't tell me my problems. I know you are, but what am I? The um, Galil will be destroyed. I don't know what the, I don't know what the significance of that one is. Exactly, what's that? Don't know. Uh, some say maybe the 2006 war where the, uh, the, the Hezbollah attacked. The, um, in the end of days, I should use the proper Lashon, in the footsteps of the Messiah, um, Yirei Chet will be despised, they'll be mocked. People who are good people will be made fun of uh, because of their goodness. They're going to they're gonna be threatened by the goodness the and mock it. The Haredi will be mocked. No, but it, uh, isn't that the Pasuk? Yeah. The Haredi, that's based on the Pasuk in Yeshaya. Correct. Right, then the Loshan is the Haredi. Correct. Very good catch. Uh, truth will be absent. There'll be times of utter lies. People just lie left and right and somehow say it with a straight face. Uh, young men will shame the faces of their elders. Young women will, sh- will shame their mothers and their mothers in law. Um, the elders will stand for the youth, and the youth demand honor. Uh, I, 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 we just mentioned it the other day, the former Israeli star Uri Zohar's uh, image of being the pop star on the stage once upon a time where the, the youth or the idealized one, the plastic surgery so everybody could look young, uh, whereas in the Torah world we revere our elders, it's really backwards, backwards and you know, the, the, the present youth culture is backwards of what it should be. Uh, a son scorns his father, a daughter, her mother. The, uh, Another prediction, all will lose faith in everything except for Avinu Shabbat Shemayim. People will still be God-fearing. And remember the statistics, the Gutman Stender study, I said 80% of Israelis believe that Hashem exists, but they don't believe in religious structures. Um, we know today that people have become dis- dis- correctly disillusioned with society. Most of the isms have proven bankrupt. Marxism, socialism, capitalism, uh, the whole, the whole, uh, all, all the new theories, all the new, um, new, the latest gurus who offer redemption are turned into bankrupt. The politicians, certainly. What was um, uh, Barack Obama's uh, original campaign? Yes, we can. Change is possible. Uh, eight years later, people have dis- disabused of the idealism that, that, that brought him to power. Uh, change is possible, but only we understand when you have belief in the Kodesh Baruch Hu. Uh, there is presently, you know, we, the, the, there is. No ism that carries the day. Uh, there are no leaders that are that are that are that really can make good on their promises, except in the Torah world. There is no peace plan in Eretz Yisrael with the mess that we're in with our Arab neighbors uh, and then the Arab and the Muslims in the world in general. Uh, the, the Mishnah says there's no inherent goodness in humanity. Excuse me. The, the, the belief that there's no, there's no inherent goodness in humanity. Um, the pasuk in Hosea indicates that in the end. Only when people come to see Hashem when they, will they finally uh, be motivated to make tshuva. I find this is true when I'm guiding non-religious Jews and I start getting all passionate and excited about whatever I'm saying. And um, I always feel when I'm on a roll and I'm starting to go off, like it's not even me talking anymore. I know, I know other Rebbe's and teachers have the same feeling. When you're teaching the MS, you're trying to convey the Torah to other people. Sometimes it's not even me doing the talking. I've got like some kind of divine inspiration. And, um, and then you see it in people's eyes, people who are not believers necessarily, but they hear the MS. And you can see that like spark that goes off. They hear it. They know. They recognize when Hashem and they... A lot of good people out there. A lot of people who really would make tshuva. They've got a lot of impediments, a lot of stumbling blocks, but they would do it if they could. Um, we look around, and there's so much that I'm going to give you. This, the, the, the next source I'm about to give you is a, is a wowzer. Uh, before I get there, uh, about this particular Mishnah, um, there's so much in it that we say, this is it, right? This is our time. Mashiach's got to be around the corner. It doesn't get any more than this. Well, I refer you to one of the great commentaries of the 13th century, the Yad Ramah, Ramir Abu Lafia, uh, who's really increasingly, I find, he's a must-read. You just have to be, he's like after Rashi, uh, in terms of giving you pshat. Anyway, he said, in reading this list that I just recited to you, he said, he, it's uncanny 
how it's describing his world that he's experienced in 13th century Spain, and he said, it must be the Mashiach's around the corner. And, and in fact, he says he wonders why Ben David hasn't come already in his generation. And uh, you read that and you think, well, it didn't come in the 13th century. I guess a lot of generations feel that. We've seen the Messiah craze sweep up many a generation. Uh, many people feel it's got to be now. Understandably, very hard to continue in the present status quo. Uh, here's the source. It's Pirkei de Rebbe Yezer, uh, chapter 30. Uh, it's Rebbe Yishmael. You know this? You know what I'm about to read? Rebbe Yishmael teaches. It's Rebbe Yishmael teaching about Bnei Yishmael. Get that part confused? Yeah, yeah I just... It's about Bnei Yishmael. It cites, it lists 15 things in Eretz Yisrael that will exist in the end of days. Daniel, you with me? I just did this. You just did Thursday. this? Thursday. Uh, it's Yofi. So I'm not to say, all, all, not every one of the 15 is remarkable, but I'm going to cite those that are. Um, one, um, they will measure the land with ropes. Um, you know when they did this? The Sykes-Picot plan after the League of Nations, in, when the British and the French rose to power after World War I, they literally walked around the country. I know somebody who gives a tour of the Sykes-Picot mission as they left the North was Lebanese Israeli coast, and they literally walked with ropes to measure the, and, and many of the borders that separate the state of Israel from its neighbors presently are based on the Sykes Pico borders from 1921, 22, 23, something like that. Uh, anyway, they'll measure with ropes. Others say maybe it's a partition plan. Um, another, uh, number two, in the Pekin Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yishmael teaches, they will make the cemetery into a sheep dunghill and a garbage dump. This also is uncanny. Uh, maybe this is one that a tour guide can get particular um, uh, uh, enjoyment out of. Um, Harazesim, the most important right over across the hill here from where, where we are right now, uh, was so terribly vandalized, literally turned into a garbage sheep. They're now making renovations. They're trying as best they can to fix it up. But all over, you can see vandalized graves, um, destroyed. Uh, you remember Sambuski? We just were in Sambuski a few days ago. That kind of an image, just absolutely destroyed, um, turned into a garbage dump. Number three, great falsehoods will be perpetrated. One pictures the Arab propaganda of Tel Aviv being bombed. You ever see those pictures before? Or of the Israeli soldier um, superimposed and photoshopped onto a picture where he's beating up his, uh, an Arab baby. Great falsehoods will be perpetrated, but it's not just there. Also, people in general are liars. Sometimes in the, uh, the Kabbalistic terms, we call it Alma de Shikra, the world of lies, which I can't imagine was ever as bad as it is today. Number four, Jewish sins will multiply. Yep. Number five, silk will be like wool. Abundance of silk. You know how silk in the ancient world, you'd be fortunate if you ever saw it once in your lifetime. Today, you can find silk. Go get a nice bathrobe. Tie. Tie. It's made of silk. Uh, this, this, this one's my favorite, one of my favorites. Number six, pen and paper will wither. Was that their machine you're using there, Daniel? Yep. In the end of days, pen and paper will wither. Uh, we'll all go digital. Uh, moving on, number seven, government coinage will be worthless. Yeah. Okay. Credit cards, internet, uh, PayPal. Um, what number are we on? This is number eight. Number eight, they will build the ruins of the great cities of Am Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael. Number nine, they will clear the roads. Number ten, they'll plant gardens and orchards all over the desolate, barren land. Um, and finally, in my list, there are more, but these are the ones that really strike me. Uh, this one is old, but you have to realize, Pirkei de Rebeliezer, Rebeliezer is Rebeliezer ben Hurkinus, that we saw this morning in Gemara, same Rebeliezer from the Tanaim, uh, he predicts they're going to build a building on the site where the Hechal, where the Kodesh stood, where the Holy Temple stood. That was the one Right, I mean, that's a long time ago, but the fact that there's a building there till today, and, and, and it says it's Bnei Ishmael, the Arabs are going to do that. Uh, okay, so Chazal do something that uh, we don't always know. Um, adding to this list of what's going to be in the end of days, Moran Sanhedrin talks about the number of Chachamim. Uh, they're going to diminish before the Vyasa Mashiach, before the Mashiach arrives. 
Um, it'll be similar to the situation. It's kind of scary if you remember back at the end of the first temple period, before Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered Yerushalayim, where, where the Karish and the Masgir were exiled with, with the exile of Yoyochim to Bavel, and uh, there weren't so many, there weren't the same number of Chachamim. I, I, I remember feeling this, you know, with the passing now, or Bosner's passing, and that whole old guard of Chachamim, of, of Tzadikim, of Bidolim, uh, that have moved from the scene. Oh, Hashem, we have certainly a lot of contenders, but there's a feeling that the old world is moving on, and we're, we're, we're a different generation. Um, Oh, oh, yeah, here's the puzzle. It's, if you want to look it up, the one you're referring to with the Lashon of Charedim for Hashem's word, it's in Yeshaya Samach Vav Pasuk Hei. Elaborating that theme, um, your brothers who hate you and distance themselves from you will be ashamed in the end of days for those Charedim for the, uh, the Bar Hashem. Uh, the most honored people will be corrupt. Um, when the Gemara says, I have a comment from Rebbe Chanan Vasaman, the Gemara says, that the government will be heretical. That they'll propagate heresy. They'll spread false beliefs, anti-Torah beliefs, um, and nobody will be capable of influencing the heretics to change their minds. Right? With all the great talent and group that we have today, it's very hard uh, to really go try to give give ish discovery seminars to the uh, secular Israeli society. They're not buying it. Um, teaches that the leaders will behave as dogs. They're always going to seek approval from the ignorant masses. That's how politics works. Whatever you're going to get, whatever's going to vote you in. Especially in democracies. Sure. The nature of That's the definition of democracy. Uh, in the Mission Sanhedrin, terrible suffering will occur. There'll be no let up. Tzaddikim will die first, so they won't be part of the suffering. You remember before the Shoah, how so many of the Gedolim passed on before the uh, Shoah really formally began. Um, before the first trouble will be over, the second will suddenly appeal. We'll never have a chance to catch our breath. Um, this actually refers specifically that idea. Before the first trouble is over, the second one will appear. Is literally what the Gemara defines as Chevle Mashiach. Chevle is a Chavalim, the birth pangs. Just like in birth, before something great comes into the world, there's immense, almost superhuman pain. And that's, that's the nature of, of, of what it will be. And it will seem unbearable. It will seem to us that we will not be able to get beyond it. Um, there's a machlokis over whether Hashem will bring the geula only on condition that we make tshuva. Uh, or even if we don't make tshuva, the, the second view, it's a machlokis tanaim and amoraim, whether he'll make us make tshuva by, by making the suffering so intense that we'll have no other res, res, recourse. We'll have to make tshuva. Um, Aruch Lener says that Chavli Mashiach is like a wheat kernel. First it has to rot, and only after the rotting can it sprout a new stalk. And perhaps that's what we're, that's what we're witnessing in our days. Um, This is the beginning. I'm going to end early today because this begins a new unit. Um, we're going to pick up and talk about Nechemis Gogu Mago and, um, and the end of day's war. Uh, and then we'll talk about, then we'll, 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 we'll get into some of the many mysteries of the end of days. And then finally, Olam Haba, Ayn uh, Lorasa, even though an, an eye can't behold what is in Olam Haba, there's a certain amount we can describe um, as, as we uh, try to tie up all of our loose ends.